Are you seeking to broaden your horizons, to stay relevant and become future fit? Do you want to fuel your creativity and inspire innovation? Or are you simply looking to put the kapow back into your business? Then look no further. Join Carmen Murray, entrepreneur, innovator, and tech fundi with her big personality and presentation style as she interviews celebrities, alchemists, newsmakers, and business experts to discover the stories behind their success. The Carmen Murray Show will open your mind and help you turn knowledge into magic. Let knowledge be your superpower. And now, from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Carmen Murray. Hey, 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 beautiful tribe. Welcome to yet another episode on the Carmen Murray Show. I'm super excited today because I'm going to explore my curiosity about creativity within the marketing industry with a genius, a creative genius, Matthew Barnes. Hmm. Now, while you go, (laughs) I'm going to do a quick introduction and just say, Matthew Barnes was the chief creative officer for um, Ogilvy. And I remember going to all of these award ceremonies. And I think he could he and his team could just as well just stay in the front because every time as they go to their seat, they get called back to get another award. And it was like, oh, we could never compete against these guys. It's just not going to happen. So that's the creative mind that we are going to explore the industry with um, today. So with that being said, welcome, Matt. Good morning. Awesome to have you here. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for the invitation. You were clearly uh, run out of real candidates to use this morning. Oh, no, 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 no. You have been on my wish list for a while. (laughs) Um, No, I've always been fascinated. You know, when I grew up, my mom and I, we were talking about my career and what I want to study and, you know, you know, dreaming, you know, when you're 16 years old. And I said to my mom, I want to be, I'm like a creative person. I want to work with creativity. My mom said, you're never going to make money. You're never going to do anything with your life if you do that. And I so regret that I never did it. And it was quite an interesting thing for me. But um, now I have somehow manifested in my life where I actually am in the creative industry in some shape or form. So with that is, where did you grow up? What is your background story before we go into how you got into the creative industry? Okay, um, sure. It's an interesting question that I think a lot of people looking back after 10 or 20 years in the creative industry sort of ask themselves, what the fuck happened? (laughs) I grew up in a creative family. So my father was a marketing man for probably 30 years. So he was the marketing director the days before there were CMOs for Sales House and for Jet um, and a couple of other businesses. So I grew up very much in on one side being exposed to marketing and advertising, regular trips on school holidays to the old Edgar Dale or to retail stores out in Krugersdorp to go and see how the latest campaign was selling T-shirts. <laughs> and on the other side, my, my mum was a full-time mum, so she had definitely the harder job, but she, artist, uh, sort of part-time political activist. So I think that the combination of those two meant that a career in any real industry was probably off the books. And I yeah, spent some time uh, traveling the world. So I, I sailed for three years or so trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And there were some choices. Most of them they were limited by my, my sort of pretty average academic performance at school. And so I ended up at the Red and Yellow School of Advertising in Cape Town in the early days. And then from there, stepped into Ogilvy as a junior copywriter working on Sun International retail headlines. And I think the rest is, is in some ways um, an interesting and uh, patchy history. Well, from my side, I think that, you know, witnessing um, the marketing industry in a post-pandemic world, I don't know what's going on, but I'm feeling completely hmm. numb to what is happening in the marketing industry. And since you've been raised with it, yeah. and you look at the state of what it's in now, what is your views? Well, normally I try and answer that question with a lawyer sitting next to me. <laughs> but it's a very good question. I think that a lot of the systemic issues in marketing and advertising as an industry globally and locally have been exaggerated by COVID and by the pandemic. So some of them are new, but I think in 
in many ways what we are experiencing is has been accelerated by COVID. It's been underlying and, and the themes and the trends have been there, but they've kind of come to a head. So perhaps to, to compare it to e-commerce in that, you know, the staggering figures of how the growth of e-commerce, 10 years worth of e-commerce has happened in sort of eight months around the world. I think a lot of those issues that we've been experiencing over the last five, 10 years have come to a head. So one other question that I really want to also just dive into, I see that you've studied at Stanford. Um, correspondence, correspondence. Correspondence or not, it's like the dream of mine. I went to go and see how much a little, little course costs and mm. I was like, holy crap, there's no way I'm going to pay for that. But um, what is your, your views in terms of the quality of education of marketing? Do you feel like, I don't know, from my perspective, I just feel like Mad Men days, we're still there. I just feel like we're not evolving and creating new new ways, new methodologies. We're taking something from the old and we're basically just evolving it into this new world, Use it, building it on an old-fashioned business model. I think you're 100% right. The, the business model is probably the two words that are most interesting in that. Um, not that I'm a, a, you know, a functioning, trained, literate accountant. But I think that part of the, the root of, of the malaise that we're in at the moment in terms of the industry is fundamentally is the business model, which comes from the, the 1960s, 1970s. The idea that hours build, hours spent is the fundamental of the advertising business, I think is a major problem. Mm. So from that, and perhaps we'll get into a bit more detail, I think the basic contract between creativity and business is at its heart is flawed. So from that... I think it runs down through the industry into the quality of graduates that you can attract into the business, the grad, the quality of school leavers to pull them into tertiary education in terms of colleges and so on. And I think that so fundamentally there's an issue with the business model, the contract between being a creative and how you, you get a return on your creativity at the most mm. basic level as a freelancer all the way up into the industrial scale advertising and marketing businesses. And that has a lot of run-on effects into the quality of people we can attract into the industry. So people who've been perhaps working in other industries coming into the, the ad business, marketing business, which was always kind of a driver of getting interesting people who, who made this yeah, the smorgasbord of talent. I think that people leaving school, there's not a lot of arguments at the moment if you're paying money to go and join a tertiary institution to learn about marketing and advertising. I think that those numbers are under threat. Mm. Yeah, you you so so right. I'm busy with the research study on it. Can't reveal the insights as yet, um, but it is kind of showing that um, yeah, the industry is a bit in trouble. And I think if we look at younger generations, you know, the digital natives and how they you know exposed to the internet. They see what marketing looks like, what it does. Marketers are not really paid as well as your CTOs, your CDOs, and all of that. We have to be honest. Uh, people make decisions on careers based on money. I, I do think that it plays a very important role. Um, but second of all is if you are seeing in the industry the crap that's out there, I mean, the click funnels. I mean, how many click funnels do I get in my feed in a day? Probably like 10, 20. And I'm like, why are these people targeting me? But now I'm trying to train the algorithm to say, please don't show me this ad. And then Good I, luck with that. Yeah, it's not working. <laughs> yeah, now Sheryl Sandberg is gone. I don't know what's going to happen there with Facebook. Uh, meta, meta. But just to get back to the point, I almost feel that people, if you look at TikTok and the, how the TikTok generation, the ads that young people are making that looks like real commercials and the creativity that's happening from people. I mean, I'm just going to use the Amber Heard and um, Johnny Depp trial. If you just look at everything that was going around on TikTok and the creativity and how people used all the features to tell a story, you go, wow. And I kind of feel people think that they can do marketing and advertising on their own. Like they don't need to go and train for it because they're creators by themselves already. So to wind back a bit, well, I think that you're 100% right in terms of this idea that you have to be in the world that we're living in, a marketing professional who studied something and has the instincts and has honed that and works with different people. The idea that you don't have to have those skills to market effectively is absolutely true. And that mm. in many ways is the elephant in the room. So 
one of um, one of the the chaps that I follow very very closely, and I think is a little bit of a one of the few people that's actually kind of calling it as it is in the industry is a guy called Scott Galloway. And what Scott Galloway, his one of his early analogies is when graduates coming back to the point ask to say, ask him to say, well, what should I study? So these are some post grad and these are some um, high school leavers thinking about what university to join or what course to 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 take. Um, and he's a clinical professor of marketing. Interesting interesting title at NYU Stern in the States. And his analogy is that if you take 3,000 snakes, young, small sna- uh, snakes, and this is based on a documentary that he was watching on Animal Planet or something in Asia, where if you take 3,000 small snakes, at the, uh, snakes, big apart, <laughs> at the, snakes at the, the snakes as well, yeah, high, high snakes game. If you take 3,000 snakes, little snakes, and you put them in a big casket, well, let me actually start again. That sounds horrifying. Yeah, horrifying. <laughs> so, so, so back to your back to your back to your question about the state of the industry and this idea that everyone can be a marketer and advertiser. Scott Galloway has a very interesting analogy. He references a documentary that he saw about a father and son who live in a particular part of Asia, where their job, their what they do, is they collect and sell snakes. And at the beginning of the season, they go out and they collect three thousand small snakes. And they put them in a big trunk and they close the lid and they come back at the end of summer and they're two snakes. And he uses that analogy to describe the impact of Google and Facebook and more recently Amazon on advertising and media. So as we've experienced, and I'm sure that some of the people who are listening to this or perhaps work in a client space just look at your media plans and your media budgets. And, and generally speaking these days, well in excess of 50% as a minimum, probably closer to 70 or 80% is based around those two platforms. Mm. And both of those two platforms offer you the ability to create an ad, to target that ad, to pay for the ad in under 15 minutes using a mobile phone. Mm. My 12-year-old can do it. So... The elephant in the room is that we've got this massive advertising industry around the world, advertising and marketing industry filled with a lot of experience, a lot of talent and ability. But essentially, we're being disintermediated by the ability to go and target anyone in the world down to 100 people, to 10,000 people, to a million people using a mobile device and a platform, even in the case of Instagram. I can create something that probably 10 or 15 years ago would have involved using a photographer and using someone who understood code and using someone who was really onto the nascent development of digital media. I can, I would have had to have used those people 10 mm. years ago. Today I can do it on my phone. 100%. I mean, if you just look at Canva as an example, I mean, graphic designing is an art. Yeah. Um, you, you get a real proper graphic designer artist and now everybody else can do their own designs in two minutes and you have a template and you can just put put your own colors to it, your own picture and voila, you've got a creative design and more and more people are doing that. And this is where it becomes interesting because as technology is evolving and enabling us to solve our own problems, the, the, the reality of the case is that if it's so easy to do something like that, why study graphic designing? You know, um, what's the future of that specific role? And the same applies for advertising. If, if we if we look at uh, marketing, all of these things are under threat. I, I think that definitely from working inside the industry and, and in some cases doing my best to, to work outside the industry, long story. I think without a doubt that, that the industry is, is under threat. So back to the, the core question of the quality of work that we see out there, the graduates that are being attracted into the industry, the pressures that clients are under, the financial pressure that, that most of the big global or regional advertising marketing businesses are under, um, including media owners, by the way. I, I sort of compare it to the fact that the ice caps are melting. Mm-hmm. And if you're a mammoth, you have to cover a lot more ground just to stay warm and, and to fill your belly. And I think that's kind of in a weird, in a weird way is, is what we're experiencing. I think at the core of that, the business model, hours build, hours spent. So that mm. seems to be completely out of step with the way, the way that the world is going. I think that the idea, if you compare advertising to other creative industries, there's a very interesting analogy in there in terms of the return on creativity. Mm. So for instance, simplistic example, you mentioned awards 
and that's probably where we first met at, at award ceremonies. I think that in some cases, if you just use the awards lens to compare advertising to some of the other businesses, creative businesses, I mean, if you're a producer and you work out of Los Angeles, Los Angeles being the headquarters of the music business globally, and you're a producer and you win an Emmy, the next day you can charge more for your services than you did before you won an Emmy. Hmm. Same pretty much goes for the Oscars. Same goes for the Grammys, sorry. Um, one of the issues, I think, at the core of this construct between hours build, hours spent, creativity, and, and the commercial return, if you compare that to other creative industries, car design, music, fashion, film, is that there is a belief that the more creative you are, the more you earn. So what I mean by that is if you're Pharrell Williams and you win a Grammy for X album, you will be able to charge more for your creativity than a chap who's just come out of audio school and has now set themselves up as a producer. Mm. That doesn't exist in advertising. So there's not a single advertising agency out there today who at the end of this month, once they've won some awards for fantastic work at Cannes, I would pretty much bet my unpredictable freelance consulting salary on the fact that not a single one of those agencies will be able to go back to their clients yeah. and ask for more money because they've proved that their creativity drives results. And if we're in an industry like that where a Google and a Facebook and an Amazon and various others are taking the vast majority of our budgets and that's purely on you pay for performance, mm. what remains of this advertising business and marketing business, which is extraordinarily powerful and can be you know, deliver exponential results, disproportionate results, is based on a system where the vast majority of clients around the world are not prepared to pay more for more performance according mm. to the traditional model. So if I go in and go and win a whatever flavor there is at can at the moment for effectiveness, let's say I win the, the Grand Grand Prix, the Super Cup for performance or measurable performance through creativity in can, that may increase my ability to go and work for a company somewhere in the world, but fundamentally the hours that I am billed at are not going to be worth more than before I won that award. And I think that that's something that's becoming more and more apparent. One of the reasons why clients are spending so much more spend on the digital platforms is because they go, okay, cool, I run, I spend X on one of the platforms, pay-per-click or whatever it might be, the metric, and I get results back. And so the more I spend, the more I get. Search engine optimization, I think, is one of the you know one of the most lucrative areas of marketing services because yeah. very very few clients ever reduce their spend because of a lack of performance. Correct. So I think that in some ways this beautiful kind of Frankenstein that we've created since the the heydays of advertising in the fifties and sixties, where we started to see consolidation and the big networks building up, I think some of that is 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 under real existential threat in terms of the value that it presents to clients and and how we sell it and engage with it mm. and that. You know, when you have less money to go around, you a lot of the ancillary stuff around schools and graduates and uh, internship programs and attracting in interesting people mm. becomes hell of a hell of a difficult. You know, it's so interesting that you talk about that. And, and one of the things that always resonates with me the most is the power that marketing and advertising has to shape and shift culture. And if we look at... It's almost like a paradox for me. So the one thing that we're trying to do is we go into neuroscience, data science, big data, go into the data lake, and then we have data obesity. We don't analyze our data properly, skewed results, and we create this creative based on all this massive amount of data. Because we're trying to understand the consumer more and more and more and they're evolving because now we're in the age of information because people have more information about a brand than, than some of the people that sell the, the product has. And the, the other side of the, of the coin is instead of just want to know and how a person thinks and, and you know how their mind works the whole time and using psychology in a very dangerous way on consumers why not try and be more creative and purpose-driven with your with your attempts and and understand that it's an, a nurturing relationship you're trying to build it's not just a campaign 
And I think that's the the thing that I, I really struggle with because I think this kind of data in people's hands are so dangerous. If you just look at the metaverse and where we're going, um, your pupil and how it dilutes and how um, you, you look left or right determines whether you are going to see a certain piece of content or getting into your mind is a dangerous thing if you don't tread carefully um, when you're dealing with human beings. Yeah, uh, that, that could almost be... From my, my point of view, a whole other series of podcasts. The reality is, if we're talking about data and understanding this extraordinary complex species that we have developed into, you know, mm. seven billion of us, or however many there are right now, probably more by the time we finish this podcast, that data is the only way to wrangle that. And that's been proved, I think, through various different levels of society going back thousands of years where your ability to measure your number of citizens you have, how much tax they've paid, where they're going, that's kind of the, the lifeblood of managing civilizations. The problem I think that we have is that that data is in the hands of corporate, mm. quarterly, moral construct. And that's a big problem. I, I remember a while back, which probably ruined, was one of the... One of the um, the beginnings, if you like, or one of the undermining factors in, in, in my advertising career was I met some, some lovely people from Facebook in the early days when they were building a sort of a real presence in South Africa and really amazing people, wonderful people. And I was asked a question by one of the chaps who had that perfect mid, sort of mid-Atlantic accent, was from Facebook, and we were at the Luries in Durban. And he said to me at a, at a Facebook-sponsored event, we were sort of giving a whole bunch of students access to, to creativity tools. And it was a really, really, really good idea um, for an event. And he said to me, what do you think of Facebook? And I said, well, I think you've got a fundamental problem. And he said, what's that? And I said, you don't have a conscience. Mm. And that pretty much ended the conversation. I didn't get an invite to the party <laughs> later that weekend. But I think it's true. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to, to understanding a lot of the sort of, if you like, the meta or data um, or, or narratives in the industry. So I was following Cambridge Analytica before Brexit. I've been following the Facebook journey from round about the time that, that the recently departed CEO, Cheryl, uh, joined the company. And, and I think that it's a real, real problem that, that Facebook have consistently demonstrated that the commercial interests that they serve through their shareholders and various other things are much, much bigger than their responsibility to humanity. Mm. And I think it's a problem. I think in some cases that that supposedly the myth is that the lead in the lead pipes mm. killed the Roman Empire. I think that our treatment of data, our, our overruling, our hacking of privacy from a moral perspective, the legislation yes. that exists in the world, you, know, you look at Europe versus United States, the difference there, what Asia is doing, particularly with China, how they're using data. I think we're in a period where we have to think very, very carefully about how we handle data, how mm. we handle people's response to that data at a fundamental level, let alone the psychological impacts of yes. what social media does to teenagers. Facebook's known about that evidence for multiple, multiple years. They've, mm. they've gone in front of Congress at various different times and explained that and, and said that they didn't really know what the effects would be, but they were working on it. And I think that, you know, nothing personal, to, you know, no personal criticism of Facebook themselves, but I think that, you know, as Karl Marx famously said, interesting chap, that capitalism is is a separation of morality and capital. Mm. Uh, I'm not quoting him clearly. I didn't go to university properly. But I think that that's what we're seeing now, is that how can you have this much data, this much power in the hands of a couple of companies mm. and for them to be beholden to a set of shareholders? And I think that's very, very, very dangerous. Um, I've made the case before that, that parts of Google and Facebook should be nationalized. So... That, that kind of power and insight into humanity should actually be in the hands of a whole bunch of bumbling, overpaid, uh, over-resourced, slow bureaucrats in the, in the vein of the United Nations, um, because otherwise we can end up with some very, very nasty situations. Um, and I think that recent history has proved that. Yeah. And I think, I think more to come. I think... You know, just um, th thinking about like elections and you know how things. I mean, did you the, the situation with the Ukraine, right? Mm. So this for me, the digital wars. I call it the digital wars. So Putin said, okay, Ukraine, um, they're not going to have access to the internet. They shut them down. 
Elon Musk arranges internet for them and they are using the internet to tell people what's truly happening in Ukraine because what Putin is telling the Russians is not accurate and he's like, oh, we're conquering the Ukraine, etc., etc. And you know what they did? I, I actually get goosebumps when I think about it. They told all of the citizens to go into um, um, Google reviews of restaurants in Russia and to go and leave Google reviews to tell them what's happening in Ukraine to try and get the message out there because it helps with ranking. And I was like, how genius and how smart is that? Now, when you look at the power of of the internet and the good that it can do, I think it's, it's, it's as you say, it's fundamentally flawed because of leadership consciousness. Um, I think it also has a lot to do with it's the person that's ruling the technology. It's not the technology itself that's a problem. It's the person that's in control of it. Is that person going to make a moral decision or are they going to make a decision that's only going to benefit them and not everybody else around them? It's it's a very good question, uh, but I guess human history and evolution is filled with examples of something that, that is the potential to accelerate growth, to give access to, to opportunities and so on, and that ultimately in many cases becomes a a battleground between two different or three or four different different ideologies. I think that in the case of Ukraine, it, it's a fascinating microcosm of where we are heading on a number of different levels. Um, and how digital technology can enable both sides of that continuum. One of the interesting little little pieces of the narrative of Ukraine, the special military operation in Ukraine, as they call it, tongue-in-cheek, is that one of the reasons uh, that analysts are saying that the Russian invasion has fallen behind its objectives and has in some cases failed is because they have relied so heavily on a weapons-grade disinformation campaign Mm -hmm. over the last 10 or 15 years. And that, in in the case of Ukraine, failed. And that is through social media, largely driven by social media. How the impact on Trump's election that was a huge amount of that was was a weapons grade disinformation campaign using social media. The same with Brexit. Um, and last time I checked, don't quote me on this, but about using Facebook as the platform that some very nefarious interests have, have rigged using a similar playbook to Brexit, to Trump's election, to what's happened in Ukraine as a diff- disinformation campaign in societies that have have sort of higher rates of connectivity with the internet. South Africa is, is perhaps one of the most powerful examples. Cambridge Analytica was actively involved in, in our disinformation campaign, white minority capital and so on, is that it just shows you how I think that it's almost become another, another weapon of foreign policy, of neo-colonialism, whatever it is, and that's a very, very powerful weapon. So I think it's it's wonderful, all these amazing examples, drone technology using Starlink, using reviews on various different Russian social media sites, um, finding ways to hack around the system to tell the truth. But mm-hmm. I think that what's, what's very, very interesting is that the truth has become so subjective because of the access of various different significant commercial interests or political interests to manipulate it. So it's great that we're fighting back, and it's a bit like the theme from Star Wars, um, the Rebel Alliance. But I, but I really do think that that our access to information, our ability to understand what is going around us, uh, going on around us, let alone access to amazing apps that are that are that are enable mom and baby health around the world and nutrition apps, amazing things mm. like that. Is I think that. A lot of the the dark forces in the manipulation of information are, are really are unseen until it's too late. You know, the gun lobby in America right now, the the, the yeah. fake news around COVID vaccines, the fake news around George Soros's involvement in uh, helping Mexicans come across the border. These stories are bullshit. But what we're seeing is that people don't care. Mm. And and kind of what we've created, I think, is also not to, not to bash Facebook too much. I mean, most most often, I'm sure Mark is listening, even though he's not listening. <laughs> but um, via via WhatsApp. But I think that you know one of the biggest challenges we face is that you know in the old days there was the some idea around journalism and news, be it be it you know around the fire and sharing stories, and there was this idea that there would be some kind of debate. Mm. So you could say, okay, cool, South Africans are coming across the border. Mexican border into America. This is one of the the um, 
the right-wing Ted Cruz supporting senators said this uh, a couple of months back. And people said, well, South Africa's, there's a sea that separates South Africa from, the Mex- from Mexico, from the Mexico. Sounds like something Donald Trump would say. People didn't give a shit. They tweeted it. They retweeted it. They shared it. They consumed it. They talked about it. So I think that one of the issues we have is that we, we're living in an age where your ability to kind of match what you hear or test what you hear against someone else in your community has been completely undermined. So, And at the core of that, the doomsday machine that kind of is driving this is an algorithm that in trying to search for advertising dollars mm. to justify the business case for Facebook. So we all forget that just before they listed, the narrative in the world was, mm, we're not really sure what the business model is for Facebook, kind of like where Twitter is now. What's the return? Mm. And so in the early days, what they did was they, they basically asked the algorithm and they said, okay, cool, we want you, a learning algorithm, to try and figure out how you drive more eyeballs on content within Facebook in the early days. And what the algorithm figured out was that if you want someone to go from watching or engaging with one post and, or, and get them to engage with another post and another post and another post to increase that screen time, is that you need to show them something that's more extreme. Mm. So that was all great in the early naive days of cat videos. So the first cat video was oh, a yes. cat licking itself. The next cat video needed to be a cat falling off a table. The next cat video had to be two cats fighting while falling off a table, and so it goes. And that was seemed quite innocent at the time because it kept your eyeballs engaged on the platform. The problem when you start to add in political disinformation, that becomes a doomsday machine. So what you've got is you and I could have grown up together. We could have eaten across from each other at the same table. Mm. And we could have slightly different views. I could be more conservative. You could be more liberal. But there's still an element of discussion to simplify. What the the driver behind extreme content in, that's baked into social media platforms, be it uh, Instagram or be it Facebook and others, is that it's driven us further and further and further and further and further apart. Mm-hmm. So that down the road, all you're seeing is the kind of content that you want to see. And nothing steps in to go, oh, hang on a second. You might want to get some objectivity here. And I'm on the same end. And that, I think, is one of the things that's almost it, the, the horse has left the stable. And we're now trying to figure out ways to, to undo the power mm. that, that, that lies at the heart of social media. Um, because most of us don't care. Most of us actually don't stop to go, well, maybe the stuff that I'm yeah. consuming every day that's for me and that's wonderful and that's personalized and it feels like me and my friends are sharing is being manipulated by me. Mm. And it's, it's not very nutritious. No, not at all. And I mean, um, we are social reports um, 2021 after um, the pandemic. Uh, they actually had a stat that, that said that we've got one of the highest uh, stats that indicate that consumers are petrified. One, what um, companies are doing with their data. And two, is the misinformation and how to tell the truth or how to know that something is actually real or not. And that was very insightful. And South Africa actually had one of the highest. And and, and it, it made me think about digital literacy. So nobody gets a manual to say this is how you navigate on the digital highway. This is how you do things, you know, like getting your driver's license. We have a big digital divide within South Africa. I think only 64% of, of people have access to the internet. And out of that 64%, there's like a small, I think, a, a small percentage that have access to social media. Now you get people, the younger generation, coming on to digital orientated and they get themselves a smartphone. I don't think they make dumb phones anymore. And now they're exposed to the internet. And how are they going to know what's real, what's not? Where is reliable news sources? Do you know that some of the, um, you know, I'm not going to mention names, but um, news publications don't even know how to tell sometimes where the a source on Twitter, for example, is real or not, or where the original source came from and if it's fake or not. Um, the other day I was doing, because um, I do an ethnography and I work hand in hand um, with a citizen, I found this picture and I couldn't tell. It looks so real. I even thought that it was real. And then when we submitted it, we were, we were alerted, it's a, it's a fake. And this is how it's becoming so hard to tell what is real and what's not and to be objective. And I think that for me makes it even more scarier. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, but one could argue philosophically is that who are we to criticize? And, and, and again, who are we to sit down and say this is verified and this is not? Mm. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be fascinated to witness or to listen to a discussion between people who really know what they're talking about as opposed to me. About uh, no, but about about how how where do you begin where do you begin to put the stake in the ground? Because with, yeah. the, with all reality, New York Times celebrated. They do a fantastic job. They do some great journalism and some deep stuff in terms of looking into the disgusting human being that was uh, Jeffrey Epstein or uh, the culture of guns, whatever it might be. But with all due respect to the New York Times, is that I could be sitting in a part of let's say Asia mm. and go, okay, but hang on a second, New York Times. Where were you in the uh, late 60s and 70s when the civilized country with, for which you were a figurehead, as in the New York Times, was engaged in mass disinformation and underhanded secret guerrilla warfare in a sovereign country and manipulating that story for the benefit of certain political interests? So I guess, yeah, it, it's all a case of someone in South Africa, bring it close to home, could say, but hang on a second to a South African newspaper, be it in the, in the, in the NASPAS stable or other independent stables, whoever it might be. I think there's enough recent history for people to go, but hang on a second, why should I trust you? So now I must trust you in this digital age, but not long ago, and it could be five years ago, it could be 25 years ago, you guys were more than happy to tell the story of X interest at the expense of truth. So I think that, again, what, what's hell of interesting about that is we do, we are living in a space where it's very difficult to verify information, mm. but then who's verifying the information? Yeah. So I think that you see that in a Fox News versus a, a CNN uh, example in the United States where both have, have massively vested interests and they're only interested in telling their part of the story, but they're shouting at each other to the point where every single time someone listens to the despicable human being that's Tucker Carlson and says, you know, look at these guys, they, they sort of, you know, white liberal, you know, uh, whatever their agenda is. Look at the content they're putting out. And the CNN crew look at Fox News and go, look at these people, look at the content they're putting out. And in between, the truth dies. So I think that, yeah, I'm not quite sure how we undo this or reset it to the point where who tells you what's verified or not? Uh, how do you choose where to look for your information? How do we try and get the next generation that's coming through to have a little bit more trust or a little bit more curiosity in what's really driving the story? Mm -hmm. And perhaps most critically, back to Google and Facebook, where is their sense of conscience if they are some of the biggest companies in the history of the world, where are they in terms of saying here and no further? Where yeah. is Facebook with the power that they have being able to say, I'm sorry, but we believe that this information is not true. Mm. Or we believe that this information is not in the interests of the Muslims in Eastern Asia who are being rounded up and persecuted directly via social media. Mm. So I think that it, it presents an interesting space. And, and if we are to turn around and go, okay, well, Google, you, with great power comes a responsibility to have some kind of opinion on what is good and what is bad, what is verified, what is not verified, mm. then, uh, yeah, I think we're in, it for, we're in for a very interesting sort of next age of information. Um, yeah. It's very interesting, but let's bring it back to yes. creativity yes. now. So we obviously have these issues with, with, with data and overexposed data or an, an invasion of privacy as such. But how do we become the Leonardo da Vinci's of marketing again? How do we use this data to create beautiful art and creativity that lasts a, a, a lifetime and that can make an impact in the future generation? As wow. marketers. It's, it's, um, they're two very interesting pieces of the creativity discussion in terms of where is its value and how do you commercialize it. So the return on creativity. Those two, for me, the two very interesting sort of areas of concern or insight. Number one is that there's some quite significant research by some smart people. Most recently, the one I was exposed to is a, is a piece of research out of some academics at Cornell University, which is essentially documented, researched, and proved that no one likes creativity. It goes against pretty much every construct of us as, as a species. Mm. Now, that's something that certainly no one ever told me when I started out in advertising. And 
perhaps over over two decades, I've come to realize that that is true, that that human beings individually in groups or in a corporate culture have a major bias against creativity. True. So I think that that hasn't gone away. And that's something that we need to think a little bit more about. So the cultures that say, no, we're not interested. No, no, the earth doesn't revolve around the sun. Or that, no, men are not created equal. Generally speaking, ideas through history, uh, breakthrough ideas, creativity, innovation, it doesn't end well for the person who first comes up with the idea. Mm. So life for Leonardo wasn't exactly a a basket of kittens, um, like on a cake tin. So I think that's a truth that we're never going to get around, no matter how much data or, or, you know, or innovation we have. The other one, which is interesting, is, is another piece of research which, which has come out of um, some academics in, in America, is that is kind of an argument for the obsolescence of advertising. So one of the things you talked about right at the beginning was this ability of everyone to, to, to create marketing or advertising. So I think that this idea of advertising at its heart provide some kind of really valuable information to consumers. I think that is still true, but it's perhaps been a bit muddied in all of this ability to, mm. everyone has the ability to talk and everyone has the ability to share their messages and, and sell you X or engage you with Y. So in those two, using those two kind of gravities, I think number one is we have to get smarter about understanding why it is that corporations, NGOs, us as individuals, uh, as families, as schools, really are wary of creativity and that's an ageless theme and i think that the more we work together and and perhaps some of the tools that we have in this information age can allow us or or help us understand that and then from the aspect of what is advertising really there for i'm not sure that we've spent enough time figuring that out Mm. so i think that throughout history the power of creativity has been proved and the return on creativity is there when you look. Jimi Hendrix played the guitar upside down, left-handed. Yes. That gave his music a certain style. If you like, the return on that creative approach is massive and undeniable. And we can go all the way through from a Leonardo da Vinci to an Elon Musk, um, despite his present odiousness. But <laughs> is, is that there's a case for creativity, and I don't think that's going away. How do we get back to doing amazing work? I think it's supply and demand. So this idea that that creativity is a commodity, I think is in some cases is true because I have the ability to be creative, to put a filter on something, to access an audience, to stand out mm. from the crowd, from the status quo. But I think that part of what will get us back to doing amazing work that enables or accelerates culture that is part of society is that we have to move away from being a commodity to being more of a... Uh, more scarcity because mm. I think that that is the truth of the matter is that there are certain people who have an amazing ability to do something that is in the creative world that is unique mm. and that's part nurture and part nature and it's not replicable and it's in that one individual it is something to be cherished and is something that has a value how we access that and get that out into the market I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure. You know, the the thing that was so interesting for me during the pandemic, when the Black Death happened, one in three people, this is in the Renaissance era, one in three people died. So what happened was a lot of people inherited money and they decided not to work and they used their time to be creative, to read. And that was the age of enlightenment. And that was when we started seeing creativity being born and how, you know, for example, the printing press was, you know, came about, all of those things. And for some reason, I believe that maybe the pandemic would do that to us, that we would, would be able to go back to our roots. What it has done is it's taken people back to their roots in terms of why am I on this planet? What is my purpose? Um, what do I want to achieve? We're seeing the great resignation, people going, you know, deciding to, to change careers. And I think that at some point in our lives, we need to go back to to really being more informed, being informed and, and exploring new ideas and being curious about the world around us. I don't know what your sources of of creativity comes from, what inspires you, but it would be interesting for me to know is how do you nurture your 
creative mind to think differently, if I may put it that way? If I can, quickly, I'd like to try and answer your previous question, because I think what you've touched on now is very, very interesting in terms of the enlightenment. So how do, how do we get back to, to, to more creative work, more valuable creative work, more of a contribution? I think the analogy you just made with the enlightenment is a very, very good one. You need to have a whole bunch of people who kind of are a little bit dissatisfied that have time and have some kind of money because it's it's very easy for creativity to become an indulgence of sort of Western economies as opposed to a way of life in that similar way of, are you an entrepreneur? Someone might ask if they're from Europe and in an African or third world context, being an entrepreneur is not a choice. It's a way to survive. The mm. hustle of just how you make income, how you get around it. So I think that COVID has driven a whole bunch of those changes and kind of made people look at their lives from a creative perspective. I think part of maybe what we need is, is for, a, for a renaissance in creativity is a need. So what are we trying to solve as opposed to creativity now, which is wonderful, is become, it's an expressive thing and everyone's allowed to be creative on Instagram or on TikTok or on whatever platform it might be. So I think it's there, but maybe it's, it's kind of, it needs to form into, into some more interesting sort of uses and movements. But I do think that, that maybe some of our lens is jaded or some of our, our view of that is wrong because if I said to someone who wasn't in advertising and media and I said to them, do you think we're not, you can be more creative now than you were 10 years ago? I think they would resoundingly say, yes, I can. <laughs> the fact that we as, as advertisers can't necessarily make money out of it or the business model has changed, I think, yeah, so there's almost two sides to that. But creativity is there. Perhaps the next question is, what are the things that it's going to pull it together into something that is that is more more solid and and more lasting and more visible to more people? Um, I don't know. Your second your second question you're asking there is about nurture. How do you stay creative in all of this flux? I think at the heart of creativity is some kind of conflict. Hmm. So a dissatisfaction with the status quo. So for instance. Thinking of someone that I was working with recently who's a phenomenal designer, phenomenally creative, their upbringing, where they come from, and their journey through life is the driver of their creative talent. So if they didn't have to fight to get from a small dorp in the Karoo to a place where they could study creativity and didn't have to challenge all the societal assumptions about who they should be and who they shouldn't be, uh, the work that they wanted to do, uh, your mum saying to you, well, don't go into that industry because you're never going to make any money. I think that that's, that's still very, very valid. And in the case of this individual, that struggle makes who they are and how they work that much more valuable. So, yeah, I think to create is to embrace conflict. And so I'm not sure that you can escape that. So part of keeping yourself creative, I think, is, is a real personal battle with something. It can be a friendly battle as in, mm, I really want to find a way to paint with X material on Y material. It can be something a little bit more, have a little, with a little bit more gravity to say, well, geez, how do we overcome the fact that business has all this money, but charities don't have money that can be creative. It can be, how do we get, whatever it is. So I think a conflict is at the heart of all creativity and to keep that creativity fresh and driving, you need to be you need to be getting in the ring every single day with whatever whatever your your battle is. So I think that keeps keeps it fresh. Um, it's not particularly sort of unicorns and rainbows explanation, but I think that's one of the ways that you keep your creativity going. I think the other thing that that is that is very very important is craft. Is if you're a writer, you need to write. Mm. If you are a painter, you need to paint. If you are a musician, you need to play music. And I think that that craft is also a way to make sure that you're always honing your skills or training those muscles, as Brian Tripp used to say, your, 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 your creative muscle. It's a muscle. And the more you exercise it and keep it fit, the better it works. So those two things, I think, are a way to stay creative. Number one is to embrace the challenge and the conflict of being creative, as in I want to solve something that mm. in some ways at present seems like it's unsolvable or it's not perfect. Divine discontent, as David Ogilvy used to say. And on the other side is to commit to the craft of it is the 10,000 hours, as, as Gladwell would say. And those are two ways to, to keep the craft of it and, and the belief in creativity going. 
And I think in a South African context, you know, we have these everywhere you look, there's an opportunity to fix something or to do mm. something better or to, to change something. So I think from a from a energy for creativity environment, I think being around and about in South Africa, being engaged, being curious, chatting to different people, I think you'll find every single day different different spaces to keep that muscle and that kind of quest to fix things or change things to keep them full of beans and energy. I love that. I mean, I've never looked at it that way, but embracing conflict, wow. Um, it reminds me of John Flissmas. <laughs> He's always playing with, with both the shadows and the, you know, the dark side and the, and the light side and exploring both. And that's how he, he brought his comedy to life, you know, and um, creativity comes in so many shapes and forms. And I think that's also one of the things that I think there's a misperception about creativity is not necessarily just a painting or just a song or something like that. Creativity is also in a form of creating solutions, which is, goes hand in hand with innovation. What change would you like to see in terms of marketing and the creative forces around it in the industry going forward? As you probably realize by now, there's no simple answer when it comes um, to me answering a question. <laughs> I think there are a couple of things that would be very, very exciting to see. In an industry at the moment where I think that there is ultimately kind of zero net growth. So for, for X agency to grow, it has to be at the expense of someone else. Mm. What I think is, is now if you're one of the big global networks, I think that's quite terrifying. And they've got some very, very smart, passionate people who are working hell of a hard to try and find growth. Now, in a South African context, what I think is hell of interesting is that there are lots of small businesses that have popped up with experienced, talented, passionate people who can experience growth because, you know, they have the hustle, they have the hunger. And I think that that's going to happen more because for arguments like when a big agency loses a five million rand piece of business, that going to two small agencies is growth for those small agencies. Mm. And, and I think that that's something that there probably is going to be more of, and I think it's probably quite healthy for the industry to keep it on its toes. That's not new. That's a cycle that's happened, you know, over 50, 60 years. Some of the agencies that we now know as being amazing, independent, uh, or part of a global network are doing great disruptive work, the RGAs or the Wyden Kennedys, those started because two or three people said, we're out and we're going to go and grow. Mm. So I think that yeah, smaller businesses getting shares of big business accounts, I think is a good thing. I think it drives innovation and kind of drives a hunger, much like immigration does in a country. You know, you've got the status so quo true. and you've got people coming and saying, hey, we'll try it differently. We'll do it. We'll do it differently. I think that the talent coming into advertising and marketing needs some thought. And I know that you're involved in that space. And, and it's, it's really, 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 really important. One of the reasons I think the business has been able to grow and thrive and add so much value over the years from a South African perspective and globally is because it embraces all this kind of non-traditional talent that people who haven't been to university or didn't finish school or don't have a traditional CV. I think we need to do that and we need to think hell of a hard about how we keep doing that in a meaningful way. And I know that there are quite a few marketers and advertising agencies doing some very interesting work in that space. So that's exciting. I think that the, combo, the the product and marketing needs to move a lot closer together. Mm. So the days in a big organization of sales or product, sales, marketing, and then advertising as a service at the end, perhaps the tail of the dog, those need to become come much closer together. And one of the, the things that the digital economy has taught us is that product and, and marketing and brand experience are all, all, all one. And to separate them out, those companies that are doing that, that are, that are consolidating them and thinking of them as one, are doing fantastic things. Some of our fintech startups in South Africa, so Capitech, I don't think that they're a startup. Some of the work that, that FNB has done, they're really starting to pull the product team, the customer mm. experience team, and the marketing together to kind of realize that they're one, they're a three-dimensional object, and that's a hell of exciting. I think the last wish that I would have for the, the advertising and marketing industry is to try and break through this commodity aspect of creativity and marketing, mm. if you like the business model. And that's easier said than done, but to try and find a way to add some kind of deeper 
residual value to the work that is done. And that's going to be hell of a difficult. I think that there are some bright spots of, of people doing interesting stuff in that space. But, yeah, I mean, I, I smile at it because it's a bit like saying, well, wouldn't it be great if everyone weaned themselves off of uh, fossil fuels? It's easier said than done and so entrenched in our society. But, but I really think that those who find a way to attract disruptive creativity, marketing, thinking, whatever it might be, outside of advertising, it might be in product design, it might be in the way that, that businesses think about strategy or finance, whatever it might be. I think that there are just there, there are now and will remain and continue to be disproportionate returns for the businesses that are brave, that actively seek out the, the opinions of people and businesses and services that are not like them and find a way to engage with them to partner whatever however they work together I think that there, there are disproportionate returns there and will continue to be for those that are brave enough or lucky enough to figure out some kind of way of yeah of trying to to look at creativity differently um, and to bring it into their businesses and to, to put a price on it and to not fall into the trap which seems to be the narrative at the moment of I need it faster and I need it cheaper yes because that's a race to the bottom yes as we are witnessing right now. And I'm going to close off with a story because you you reminded me of it. Many, many years ago, um, when Turkey was in a civil war, they were the glassmakers and they tried to escape, so they went to Rome and those villages had wooden homes all the time. And all of these um, people immigrated from Turkey to Rome the government was exceptionally concerned and said they can't be there because they're going to burn down the villages. They have to go to Murano. Now, in those days, the glass was opaque. They couldn't get clear glass. But now they put all of these glass makers on this remote area and it became an innovation hub. And together, people that have the same interest and have different ways of making glass came together and they figured out how to create clear glass and that is when a completely new industry was born um, in science and using clear glasses and it became like a thing imports um, and exports increased and the Roman emperor said listen the the Turks are not allowed to leave if they leave they will get the death penalty and for me that's just a powerful story as to how innovation and creativity can happen when you put diversity into the mix mm. and and I think um, just to your points and everything that you've um, described throughout this this entire episode is we need to go back to to the roots of sitting across the table having meals with each other from different races different places and um, find a commonality so that we can be creative in a more inclusive way if I can put it that way hundred percent. And I think we live in a country that is all of the ingredients to be one of the examples globally and how to be creative. If you're talking about, as you said, sitting across the table from each other, we have massive challenges. We have great opportunities. We've got this extraordinary human resource around us. And I think that we've proved historically that we can figure out a creative way out of a, a horrific situation that is in many cases, to the benefit of the greater society, not the individuals. And so I think it's hugely exciting to be in South Africa, to be surrounded by all these massive challenges and opportunities, many of which the world, the rest of the world is yet to face. And we are faced with it on a daily basis, be it electricity supply or potholes or access to employment or whatever the heck it might be. I think we've got an amazing opportunity in business and society and and as individuals and families to stick our heads together and to find solutions to some of the biggest challenges that the world is, is mm. going to face. And I think that's a, that's a USP for South Africa and for the businesses and people and education institutions in this country to look at and say, how do we, how do we access this and realize its potential? Yes, you. What, what an insightful, enlightening conversation. <laughs> <laughs> From my side, thank you so much for for taking the time to spend with us today. And to our audiences, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Please subscribe to the channel um, to hear more for all the future um, interviews coming up. And yes, have yourself a great day. Now, it's a bye-bye time. Bye-bye now. Cheers, cheers. Thanks very much. You've been listening to The Carmen Murray Show, another solid gold podcast. 
Please take a moment to rate and share this episode with friends and colleagues who love customer experience and marketing just as much as you do. To connect with Carmen, visit CarmenMurray.com, where you will find links to her business services, future fit events, and biz community articles. Carmen Murray is CEO of Buya Modern Marketing Services that empower businesses to deliver premium customer experiences, B2B, B2C, and B2B2C across all industries. Some of these services include research, CX strategy, persona development and customer journey mapping, CX audits, UX audits, and the connected marketer training in connected customer experiences, mobile, data management, and AI. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.